With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. When Chef Jose Andres arrived in the United States 26 years ago, few Americans had heard of tapas. And in fact, most people actually thought he was saying the word topless. I work in a tapas restaurant and the people will look at me up and down and say, what do you do? You are the bouncer? I'm like, what do you think? Since then, Americans have warmed a lot to the Spanish small plates. He's gone on to lead 26 restaurants and win two Michelin stars. He even claims he's created the best Philly cheesesteak. You leave the Philly cheesesteak in two bites and your life simply will change forever. I'm Alison Chantel, and on this episode of Success, How I Did It, Jose Andres talks about his life, how he manages his kitchen, and why he pulled out of the Trump International Hotel, a deal that got him sued. I spoke with him at the Masters Golf Tournament in Augusta for a summit on leadership that was put on by Intersport. So I want to go into some about how you're running your kitchens and you've created this empire, but the big question that I think everybody has is, how do you go from being a good cook to being a celebrity chef, world-renowned, super successful? Well, we have a, a problem here because every time they say world-renowned chef, if you have to put the world-renowned in front of chef, means the chef is not world-renowned, period. <laughs> How do you figure? Or anybody else. When you are at home and you're cooking and your daughters tell you, I think your over-easy eggs are overcooked, daddy, <laughs> that brings you down to reality, <laughs> right? The best dishes that I have, they're all from my wife, who is here with us in the audience, Patricia. So look at here, a man, and on top of that, her recipe has been printed more times in the New York Times for gazpacho than any of my recipes. I'm like, really? <laughs> and it's the only two dishes she knows how to cook. Sorry, I'm showing. <laughs> so I want to go back to the formative years when you were a kid. Was there some moment when you realized, hmm, I'm better than the average chef. I'm actually a good cook. An important moment is a story I love to tell because I realize about the power of the story, at least to me, uh, later on in my life. It uh, had to do with fire itself. So my father, who was a nurse, loved to cook. Every man in Spain loves to cook. Usually women's cooking is better, but men love to cook. <laughs> they love to try. And they don't do like in America that any American boy throws a piece of meat on the grill and they think they can cook. No. <laughs> That's called destroy a piece of meat. But my father would cook, and they cook paella, the Spanish dish that is becoming world famous. And he would make it over an open fire. And he would always put me in charge of helping him with the fire. But I wanted to cook. I wanted to stir the pot. I wanted to put the spoon. And he'll never let me. You gather the wood. You make the fire. 
was a complicated thing. At times, he needed a slow fire. At times, a very heavy fire. And at times, you had to make room and underneath and take all the charcoal away. And I was very young doing that. And I became very good at it. And then he came and told me, my son, I don't know if you realize, but you've been doing the most important thing, something nobody else could do like you. And you want to learn to cook? I get it. But you need to control the fire. Learn to control the fire, and you'll be able to cook anything. This, to me, is a very powerful story because it's beyond cooking. It's a story that goes on exactly who we are, where we want to go, where we come from. And sometimes we want to do the cooking, but we don't know what the heck is our fire. I always ask myself, what's my fire today? Then the cooking is so simple. So it sounds like your father was a really great influence, despite whether he could cook or not. He made a mean paella, which you would help. And then you worked in a restaurant in Barcelona that was very famous, right? And, and you El went to culinary school. Probably the best restaurant in the history of mankind. <laughs> Unbiased, sure. <laughs> it's an unbelievable restaurant. It's the best restaurant. I was very young when I went there. I was roughly 15, going to 16. And fascinating guy. It's a guy that said one day, after he went to a conference, he, hear, he heard a French guy said, to create is not to copy. And he went back to his restaurant, put away all the books, and he began creating. And that's a very powerful word, no? It's what gives you going. To create is not to copy. That's a powerful phrase. To create is not to copy. How did you put that into practice? Like, how many hours did you spend cooking growing up to become the best in anything? You need to put in tons of work. So well, how did you do that? Creativity starts in many ways, and usually creativity, we all go to the same places, the places we know, the places we are comfortable. I heard this amazing phrase, I don't know who said it, and I've been using it stuff that said that life starts at the end of your comfort zone. Think about it for a second. In life, in our professions, if we move away from our comfort zone is when things really start clicking and happening. And sometimes we don't realize that to innovate and to create, we try to be too bold and try to bring the, the most cutting-edge technology or the new ways to do things. And sometimes everything is in our fingertips in front of our noses. And we don't stop for a second, breathe in, and try to find the answers to the simple things that we have in front of us that actually we're very good at. But we try to run quicker, run faster, do strange things with things we don't even know what they are. Uh, Snapchat, anyone? I mean, give me a break. <laughs> so that's what we do. We ask ourselves, what can we do with this? It's never been done before. And we work hard and until we began getting answers. That's what we do. So I want to go back a little bit to growing up for you and the Spanish Navy. You were cooked for the Navy, right? So yeah. what is, first off, what is that experience like? I can't well, in Spain, everybody people. has to go to serve the country in the old days, not anymore. I think it's unfortunate because I do believe for young boys and girls it's so, so important. I think it's good to serve your country through the Army or through the Navy or through any social enterprises that you can be helping your community. I think it gives you a sense that the country is yours and that it's yours to fix it, and it's yours to make it better. So for me, the Navy was probably uh, a changing point in my life. But when I was young, my father again took me to Barcelona, this amazing boat, four-mast, 
uh, Sailing the World, the training ship for the midshipmen of the Spanish Navy, one of the most beautiful ships in the world. I told my dad, what do I have to do to go there? You have to go to the Navy, and you have to be lucky to be chosen. Then 10 years later, boom, I'm there in the Navy. I'm like, great, I'm going to go on the boat. No, you're going to cook for the admiral. I'm like, what? <laughs> you are the best Navy chef we have. You're going to cook for the admiral. I want to go on a boat. I'm like, no option. I'm like, what? But I learned in life that if you knock on the door, and they don't open you the door, you keep knocking. And If not, you go through a window. But you go. You don't give excuses of why you didn't do something. And I did that. And I spoke to the admiral himself. Like, listen, I cannot believe they put me cooking for you. He was like, what? I want to go on a boat. He tells me, OK, we have a deal. He was almost crying. Don't tell my wife, because she's in love with you already. And one week before, I send you to the ship. I say, deal, admiral. And I did it. I went in this boat, six months, sailing around the world. First time I saw the world uh, away from where I grew up. And it was fascinating. and really changed my life in so many ways. I came to America, Pensacola, the five flags, they celebrate. One of them, the Spanish flag, like you. I knew I belong here. <laughs> then New York, Statue of Liberty coming under the Barasano Bridge, Ellis Island. The beautiful American flags everywhere. I thought the stars meant the beautiful night sky, freedom, everything is possible. I went to be part of the American dream. And when I finished my military service, like a year later after working in Spain, I got an offer to come to New York in case there's any immigration officer here or any CIA ex-director. <laughs> I came legally. <laughs> and right. here I am. Yeah. So you came with $50 or so in your pocket? I came with $50, yeah. but that was the story I told one time. How much money you had? $50. Yeah. But I was a lucky one. Yeah. And you worked in, in a, a restaurant, but then you quickly realized you didn't want to work in a restaurant. You wanted to do your own thing, right? Well, I was working in a restaurant. What happened was run by the owner's uh, son, and he was not taking care of the place. So I'm like, I don't want to work with you. So I left the restaurant after the son came, creating a fiasco in the kitchen. And I went to a restaurant in New York in the early 90s. Probably the best, most cutting-edge restaurant in America was called the Guilty Giraffe. A guy called Barry Wine at the Sony building. And was doing Japanese, the first American guy doing Japanese high-end. And he was coming to my restaurant a lot. So I went there. I knocked on the door. Hey, I would like to work a few days here. And I did that. Then I went to Chicago. Richard Melman, one of the best restaurateurs, if not the best. I love that guy. He even offered me a job, but he told me, Jose, whatever you do next, you're young, you have talent, but throw an anchor. Throw an anchor, and wherever the anchor lands, stay there and build things. And I follow his advice to heart. So I was able to move to Washington because I had these friends, partners, offer me to be the head chef. 1993 of a Spanish restaurant. And you're in your early 20s at this point, right? 23. You're pretty young, you're a head chef. Mm -hmm. Are you prepared, or do you make lots of mistakes? I had no clue how to run a kitchen. <laughs> I think I was fired two or three times in the same restaurant. But I was way too charming to, really, <laughs> to let go. Uh, and Haleo, again, was the moment that we, I would say somebody, uh, I work in a tapas restaurant, and the people will look at me up and down and say, what do you do? You are the bouncer? I'm like, what do you think? Tapas? They will think it was something else. And then, like, do you cook? Is, is cooking in that place? I'm like, no, tapas, man, tapas. <laughs> All right? 
It's not a joke. It happened. And so tapas back in the day, nobody even knew what tapas were. And here we are so many years later, 25 years later. And, and while I was not the one bringing tapas, because tapas were here way before. Spain has been in America for 500 years, people. But really, Jaleo and the restaurant we opened kind of helped create the craze of tapas around the country. But I mean, it's pretty impressive. You got Americans to embrace the idea of sharing their food. Opening a restaurant that you had to share and the portions were small, everybody will tell me, you're not going to make it. I'm like, why not? And at the end, it happened that, yes, people like to share. Yes, people like to try different things. And like the steak and your mashed potato. But the small portion really is great. I mean, think about it. America is probably, without a doubt, one of the most generous countries in the history of mankind. We should be proud of that. And we help a lot of countries around the world that indirectly help us. So I'm not too happy that they see that they are trying to cut foreign aid because I think it's the wrong thing to do for my children and your children. Mm -hmm. So the sharing is something like I believe is part of what America is. So I saw that very clearly and I thought tapas are going to be cool like hell. So how much of it do you think is talent versus perseverance versus luck versus chance encounters? Luck is important. But for you to be lucky, you have to be working hard at it. My dream was to have Michelin stars. I've been very lucky in life. But the truth is that those two stars were so cool. I cried very much. But not so much for me, but all my team. Because your team is like very loyal guys that they can be with you, but they can be with somebody else. You are only as good as the teams you have around you. We're living in this life where now it's like all these celebrity chefs. We are so many now. It's better not to be a celebrity because it's more celebrity chefs than chefs, it seems, these days. We are all cool people. Everybody wants to be a friend of a chef because, come on, just face it. If you're a friend of a chef, your life is going to improve in your eating habits tenfold. <laughs> but, you know, again, I live in a moment that my profession went to really be dark kitchens, long hours, super underpaid, underappreciated, everybody. Now we have a lot of young kids that they want to be cooks, that they want to be chefs. So when you're running a kitchen, kind of oh, a kitchen do you run? One thing I really try to do, and you can see it in my office, is making the organization of char more flat, more open, where everybody knows who everybody is, but I'm able to see across the room a person that probably will never have a chance to meet me and give me a good idea as the bathrooms in your restaurant are always dirty, Jose, and what's happening, what we're going to do to fix it. Anything, big ideas or detailed ideas. This way, everybody feels sense of ownership, feels that they can make a positive change, a positive improvement. And at the end, it's just attitude. So how do you encourage those people who have good ideas but aren't at the top to kind of bring them to the surface and create creativity within your... I, I don't think it's in, uh, encouragement. It just happens. Things happen in a more fluid way. But the encouragement just happens in the every idea counts. And we have walls full of ideas. And then other walls that they are the ideas we choose to work on. And we have many walls full of ideas that maybe we think they are not making any sense. But still we keep them because one day we may go back to them. When you just 
make sure that the opinion of everybody counts. It's just a natural process. Everybody is not afraid of opening their mind up because any idea may be a great idea. Any idea, even that may sound very absurd, it's good that you create an environment that everybody will be at ease sharing ideas. That's a matter how crazy they may be or absurd they may be. So me, I try to throw very absurd ideas. And what I love is when somebody challenges that. Like, really? No way, Jose. This is not true. This is April Fool's Day. But that's good, because you create a very easy, easy environment where everybody brings their base ideas forward. And that's what we do all the time. So how do you create a new hit dish? What's the process? I mean, it's a lot of experimenting. It's throwing crazy things in the pan that you might not expect. What do you well, do? You, people create the hit dish. We, we only create the dish. The hit is created by the consumer. If you work hard to create a hit dish, that dish may never be a hit. For example, the Philly cheesesteak. I make the best Philly cheesesteak in the history of mankind. The local Philly news, they did an editorial asking the government to take away my green card rights because I did a version of a Philly cheesesteak that they thought was outrageous. But actually, I improved the Philly cheesesteak. What did you do? We, we, we create a bread that is hollow. If you throw it in the air, it will fly. And then we made a warm cheese whiz mousse. And we fill up that hollow bread with amazing mousse of warm cheese. Remember, mousses couldn't be warm ever. Because if a mousse is warm, we'll, we'll never keep. Now we are able to do mousses that are hot or warm. Amazing. Then we put puree of onion. We put puree of green pepper. Then we got Kobe beef, raw, seared, thinly sliced. Then we put it on top of the bread. You lead the village steak in two bites, and your life simply will change forever. <laughs> I, I'm trying not to overdo it. I'm trying to. I'm trying to keep it very. I know it doesn't look very humble, but but uh, I've been as humble as I could be because it's such a good dish. That was a joke. <laughs> well, so as an artist, people are constantly judging your work. They're going to taste that Philly cheesesteak and be like. Hmm. Meh, and you think it's the best thing ever. I probably would love it, but you know, they feel like they can critique you all the time. So how do you develop a thick skin? How did you kind of get that ah, confidence? By reading Jelp every morning of your life. <laughs> Listen, actually, it's amazing the world we live in, right? Because before we will have to be paying all these companies to do kind of a, a report of how good or bad you were and send secret shoppers. And now we have 7 billion secret shoppers working at your disposal, and you don't pay them a dime. So yes, you have to develop thick skin. But, but actually, more often than not, people speak the truth. Uh, sometimes even negative comments is like, someone comes to my restaurant, jaleo, paella. And because the press and everybody spends the paella, to look like Mount Everest, the rise to the top. They expect to be full of things like chorizo, no, 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 scallops and shrimp and lobster, and the bigger mountain keeps growing, and the rice needs to be very yellow. 
And so somebody comes to my restaurant where I try to make a rice that is very thin, crunchy in the bottom, soft in the top, with very big flavor on the rice and only few pieces of chicken or rabbit or artichokes or lobster. Depends the one, but we don't put 50 things. And so they will complain. Your rice was not yellow. Your rice was very thin. Your rice was crispy in the bottom. Your rice was like, really? That's all the things we were trying to achieve. So <laughs> it's very important. You have to be always super humble in the criticism because you never know when you are on the tipping point of not being as good as you think you are. So thick skin is something like Jose the person Jose, the chef, inside me, I'm like, what the heck those people think? Who are they? I don't want them in my restaurant anymore, which is good to have, but it's good that you do that internally. And then is Jose, the, the businessman, that says, man, this is free advice that I should thank the person for taking the time and that this we will use to communicate. Every day my phone, I receive reports of every restaurant, social media, comments in-house by the guests, we use them. We don't use them every day, but sometimes maybe something like needs immediate attention. Another thing is information you put together and then three, six months later, you say, listen, look at the pattern here. You're in partnership with them to the degree. They are your partners. When they invest money in your restaurant, they are your partners. So you want to believe that they have the best intentions when they tell you something. We cannot keep seeing the people coming to our business as the guests or the customers. They are our partners. Because they don't know it. But we need to take them like they are the best partner we have out there. And then the business model changes completely. Because you don't see what they say as bad criticism, but you are trying to see it as a partner that is trying to make the business better. And then it's wonderful the things you can accomplish. So one thing that you've launched in the past couple of years is called Beef Steak. You want an alternative to the way people are eating right now, which yeah. is like Chipotle and things like that. Yeah. Tell me about the message behind Beef Steak and why you think it's important and what's happening in that trend. So Beef Steak is a vegetable concept. I love Beef Steak because they're tomatoes. It's a name I was fascinated with. And I'm like, I'm sure if I open a vegetable concept, I'm going to call it Beef Steak, Vegetables and Leash. And we create vegetables that they are not good for you, they are not healthy. Vegetables are tired of us telling them how healthy you are, how good. No, I create a universe of vegetables that they misbehave. They run over 55 miles per hour. They are behind the chickens with forks and knives. The eggplant is with the Walkman, the headphones, walking in the street. Carrots that they are nutty and are eating the steak. Uh, I create that crazy world of vegetables. And so we are trying to make vegetables affordable. And that's the concept we created. It's kind of a chipotle line where you go, you choose your vegetables, you choose your toppings, you choose your grain, you choose your dressing. can be a salad. We have a beefsteak tomato sandwich. <laughs> I had to. Uh, we have a beet sandwich. So we have a celebration of vegetables. Do I hope I'll have 100, let's say 50 in the next two, three years? Yeah, we hope so. Hopefully by the end of the year we'll have roughly between 12 and 16. My partners want me to open a fast food that had something to do with hot dogs or burgers or something like America actually likes. 
It's not easy to sell vegetables, but guess what? We have lines. And we put it in the Verizon Center, where the wizards play. The NBA team, and probably was the first time ever that an arena had a 100% vegetable concept. And it was amazing to see the lines we had. And now, next month, I got a place, downtown DC. And I'm going to start doing their testing fast food concepts. So over the next two, three years, I'm going to be testing roughly six, seven fast food concepts, like if my research and development place. Why? Because if I hit the one concept, I'm happy. I say that chefs like me, we feed the few. But it is necessary that we get involved in feeding the many. We cannot be complaining about how bad the food is in some parts. We need to stop complaining and do something about it. So beefsteak is just my trying to say, I can try to feed the many better. This is my little contribution. I may fail. I may succeed. But Winston Churchill, I think, was the one that said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. And as you can see, my boys and girls, enthusiasm is not something we lack in this seat. So that's what we do, trying to be successful. But if we fail, it's something we learn. So you've been in headlines recently for other reasons. Um, you were supposed to open a restaurant in Donald Trump's new Washington, D.C. hotel. And after he made some remarks about Mexicans, you pulled out. And now you're in a lawsuit. What drove you to do that? And what's it like going against now the president? <laughs> I'm not going against anybody, or he's not going against me. I think we're seeing the beauty of what America is. Uh, we make decisions, and we have to live by those decisions. For me, it was a business decision. I didn't feel it was, was a smart business decision anymore opening. Under those circumstances, 55, 60% of my workforce are Latinos, many of them Mexicans. Me, I'm in the business of trying to befriend everybody. And I thought those comments was going to be super damaging to the business. And I did my part pulling out, and he did his part. So he sued me. I sued him back. But that's great. The judicial system works so well in America. And to this day, I'm very, very, very glad of the decision we made. When they opened the hotel, I wish them well. That hotel has been super important for DC. It's creating a lot of jobs. And it's bringing new life to that segment, that area of DC that was nothing happening. But the fun part is that 25 years ago, I was dreaming of opening a restaurant there. And that only happens in America, that the American dream gives an immigrant like me that came with $50 the opportunity to open a restaurant in a place I dreamed 25 years ago. But also that same opportunity gives you the chance to say, well, I don't want to do it. So how do you decide when to make a bold call like that and support you know, all your employees, I think is what you felt you were doing. And you, you did it again for when the travel ban happened. Yeah. You closed your restaurants for a day, some of them. Yeah. Listen, my wife and I, we became American three years ago. And I can tell you, nothing made us brother and nothing made us happier. We swore in at the Supreme Court uh, uh, with Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Antolin Scalia, who I knew very well. And, I had many oyster contests with him, and I, I miss him dearly on those oyster concepts. He was a super smart, witty guy. But life, uh, we are in this moment where restaurants, food business, we're drawn into, without realizing, into a political talk. But this is the reality. My business, the restaurant food business, represents over 
of America. The GDP is over probably 12, 14% if we include everything, farms, restaurants. It's a huge number. Employees, 12, 14% of Americans. And today's a simple reality. We're talking immigration. Let's face it, people. Probably around us is people that are undocumented right now. And no organization, no country should have people that are undocumented. We should run the country following the laws of the land. The reality is that 70% of the workers in the farms of America are undocumented. So the salad that my senator, my congressman is having in the hill is probably being harvested by an undocumented. And this is the big lie we're facing that those people should be part of the American dream. They should because they are already part of the American dream. And my family is having a better quality of life because we have those undocumented providing the salad that my children eat. And I've been very spoken about immigration reform is not a problem for America to solve. It's an opportunity for us to seize. Everybody tries to make it political. President Bush and President Obama, two beloved presidents that did very good job with their ups and downs, pros and cons. But two beloved American presidents both tried to pass immigration reform. And both had more or less control of Congress. And both couldn't make it happen. That's a direct disservice to America. Because right now I have positions in my restaurants paying 15, 16, 17, 18 dollars an hour. I cannot fulfill because I don't have employees. Try to hire people out there. It's almost impossible. So it's not allowing me to grow maybe at the faster pace I would like. So Congress owns the American people because I think it's the right thing to do for America and the right thing to do for those 11 million undocumented to come up with a way to make them keep being part of the American system. I'm an immigrant, and I'm a proud American. I know where I come from, but I know where I belong. But I do believe the biggest contribution today uh, Congress can be doing to every single American is a true comprehensive immigration reform that yes we control our borders but yes we give opportunity to American business like mine to keep growing because we will have a workforce that is already here. That was Chef Jose Andres at the Masters. He settled his lawsuit with President Donald Trump shortly after our conversation took place. We'd love to hear what you think of Success How I Did It. Please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out. I'm Allison Chantal, and we're back with more success next week.